planet's on fire It's a real code red Got us by the balls for being slow bled All the swollen puppet head Propagandized Big chocolate points Flat outlines A house full of mirrors It's a lousy reflection Run hard left It's a true direction Democracy's in trouble This news is a fake Everything we fought for was truly at stake Border to border, coast to coast It's time to cue the talent and meet our hopes It's a podcast by George All right, folks, it's showtime So we're back. I mean, this is going to be another great edition of Podcast by George. We're back with Paul Jay, and I hope that you checked out the earlier episode. If you didn't, go back and find it, and uh, you'll segue very nicely into what we're talking about today. These are kind of long shows, and we want to make sure that we get them all in. So this is uh, the second in three episodes of Podcast by George with Paul Jay. I want to move along here so that we can get um, Paul on his way so that he can uh, work on that uh, movie. When Last time you were on, Paul, we talked about... The uh, January 6th situation, and I even got some comments from people. Uh, they said, what the hell is this guy talking about? Not calling that an insurrection. But I, th- I thought the key uh, nomenclature that you used was a, 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 a coup within a failed coup or a failed coup within a failed coup. Could you amplify on that a little? Yeah, well, let me just say an insurrection if you're going to call it an insurrection, you've got to have some guns. Of you got to have real force or you got to have millions of people. I mean, you know, what does it mean? An insurrection is you're going to take over the government, take over the reins of the government. And you don't do that uh, without, you know, a military, really. Um, So uh, to call it an insurrection is just an exaggeration. But 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 that isn't the issue. It was part of, I think, and I think there's lots of evidence. It was part of a plan for a coup. And it's not the same, like the people running into the buildings and all that, that wasn't the main act. That was like the final act of a failed coup. The the real uh, theater, I shouldn't say theater, the the real thing that happened leading up to the six was there seemed to be a plan by Trump uh, and working, you know, Flynn was in on it uh, and who knows who else, uh, certainly uh, behind the scenes, Steve Bannon. And it kind of goes like this. Uh, in September, and this is before the election of 2020, Steve Bannon goes on Tucker Carlson's show and calls for a Stop the Steal campaign. Now, there hasn't been an election yet, and they're already planning a Stop the Steal yeah. campaign. So they know Trump's going to lose. And so... The, uh, in fact, he didn't lose by as much as a lot of people thought he would. He still got, what, 74, 75 million votes. It was a lot closer than people thought, given the, the guy had completely screwed up the pandemic. Yes. Um, but that campaign is part, becomes part of a, a very work, relatively worked out plan. Anyway, I don't know how well worked out. But in the days, once Trump loses, then the plan is mobilize across the country. Uh, Bannon announces on the Tucker Carlson show he's going on a cross-country tour. 
They thought they were going to be able to mobilize people in many cities to storm state legislatures and others. It didn't really pan out. Um, but Trump tries to intimidate the governor of Georgia and the secretary of state of Georgia, and he says, give me 15,000 votes. That's one of the building blocks. Uh, other Republican-controlled legislatures are supposed to try to reverse the uh, choosing of the Electoral College. Um, but the, uh, there's other machinations that go on that, uh, in, the, in the White House. But, but I think the key to understanding what happened is on January 4th, uh, the 10 former secretaries of defense send a letter, uh, issue a letter to the Washington Post essentially warning the army, armed forces, the military, to stay out of the elections. And uh, it's clearly meant to be uh, directed towards the uh, secretary, Trump appointed secretary of defense. On the same day, uh, General uh, Admiral Stavridis, who was the former supreme commander of NATO, he writes a, a, a column in Time magazine supporting uh, the call, uh, the letter from the 10 former secretaries. And this is a guy who's now retired, uh, but he's one of the most senior executives at Carlyle Group, which is mm -hmm. a big private equity fund, amongst other things, is a big investor in the military industrial complex. Uh, and on the same day, the Financial Times has an editorial. January 4th, two days before the 6th, saying, ends by saying, as bizarre as it seems, there is a coup in progress. So the real story is the story of, quote unquote, an attempted coup. Now, what happens, I think, is pretty apparent now. And we'll see whether this January 6th commission at uh, Congressional Committee actually does anything on this, because so far all the attention seems to be on the, quote unquote, insurrection of the 6th, which is missing the real story. Um, We'll see if the real story actually comes out. But the uh, Millie, the uh, uh, Joint Chiefs, head of the Joint Chair of the Joint Chiefs, several other uh, heads of the uh, different branches of the armed forces, they actually issue public statements telling the military to stay out. Now, you don't do all of this, organize all of this, if you don't think there's a real threat. And it looks like the plan was is certain, at least sections of the military were being uh, organized that when the quote unquote supposed insurrection of the six takes place, uh, then they c the military can come in and have several things at the same time. The military, meaning some section of the military, certainly not the senior leadership because they were clearly against it. But if they've been able to pull off the reversal in Georgia, if they've been able to get some uh, Republican legislatures to uh, flip the Electoral College, um, or at least repudiate some of the election results, if all of that had actually worked, then you have this stuff goes on on the Hill, then they would have a rationale for the armed forces to come in, declare martial law, Trump remains president, and they get to call some other kind of election, assuming they're going to have an election at all. It was a crazy scheme. It was nuts. Um, I don't think it had any chance of succeeding. Um, but the most important reason why it had no chance of succeeding, although there's 
probably many reasons, is that the elites, the real power in the United States, which means the financial and corporate elites, the, you know, the billionaire class, the majority, not all, because Trump's got his billionaire backers and many, many multimillionaire backers, but the majority did not want Trump to uh, cause such a disruption to the transition to Biden because it's not good for business. Yeah. You know, what would happen? It would be chaos. The stock market would go nuts. Global finance would go nuts. China would go nuts. It, it, was, it would have been chaos if you all of a sudden don't have a peaceful transition to Biden. And of course, the elites didn't mind Biden coming in. May, many of them even supported him because one Trump was going nuts while he was in office. And the, the best example of what I'm talking about, how the elites bailed on Trump, is that on January 6th, the uh, doors of Congress are breached around 2.10 in the afternoon. At 3.04 in the afternoon, the American Association of Manufacturers issues a press release calling on Vice President Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment and remove Trump. Now, this is one of the biggest lobbyist associations on behalf of corporate America. They have loved Trump for four years. They've been amongst his biggest backers because they got every tax cut they ever wanted. They got all the deregulation they wanted. But they had come to the conclusion that Trump had gone mad and this would be bad for business. So it's time to dump Trump. Now, you don't make that decision in an hour. Yeah. You know, the doors get breached at 210. You don't have a statement calling for Pence to remove Trump an hour later, and you're prepared for this. So clearly, the preponderance of the elites had decided they were going to get rid of Trump. Uh, now, who organized that 10 secretary? This is where it gets even more interesting in some ways. And this piece doesn't hasn't been talked about enough <clears throat> who organizes the letter of the 10 secretaries of defense calling on the military not to intervene dick cheney and liz cheney mm -hmm. so these aren't guys you know certainly dick cheney and liz i don't think we've ever heard her disagree with her father in any way including some of the people of these uh, secretaries of defense if not most of them these are not people that are against authoritarian government. Certainly, Dick Cheney was one of the biggest proponents, open proponents, of the, what people call the imperial presidency. You know, violating democratic norms uh, is not Cheney's problem. He doesn't mind. I, I mean, what's the biggest, bigger, what is a bigger violator of democratic norms than an illegal invasion of a country? that kills hundreds of thousands of people and doesn't have the uh, authorization by Congress. I mean, Cheney doesn't mind this kind of stuff, but Cheney represents, and, and, his, and, and sort of George Bush and that whole crew, they represent a, a real face of corporate America, of the yeah. military industrial complex. Defense of, business, yeah. And, and others uh, to a large, 
to a large extent fossil fuel, although Trump has a lot of backing from fossil fuel. Mm. Um, so their, their difference is with Trump and the Trumpist forces uh, are, are not that they really give a damn about quote-unquote democratic institutions. And if you want to ask me later what I think of these democratic institutions, you can. Because uh, it's, it's a complicated story. Yeah. <clears throat> but not the way it's normally talked about. It's not that. It's that that group that represents really established corporate financial interest, yes, on the right, you know, the financial sector and such never, didn't have too much trouble with the, the Bush-Cheney uh, administration. They don't want this kind of authoritarianism to be led by anyone other than them. It has to be the Cheney group, uh, and not necessarily him individually, but it has to be uh, under the control of the really dominating forces of corporate America and the financial sector. And Trump is a too much of a loose cannon. You know, his financial backing uh, wasn't, didn't come uh, when he got elected. It didn't come from the sort of main, uh, even Republican funders. It was who, who stepped in? Robert Mercer, this crazy, batshit crazy uh, uh, hedge fund guy, uh, multi-billionaire who was the guy that owned Breitbart News, and he's the guy that gave Trump Bannon and Kellyanne Conway, and mm. I can't the, remember, there's another the one. The crazy train boy, yeah. Well, but skilled, skilled people in, yeah. in manipulating uh, public opinion and manipulating sections of the working class. And Sheldon Adelson is the other one that stepped in with the money. Uh, another guy, money, another yeah. batshit crazy billionaire who isn't part of the, you know, the main circles of the ruling uh, elites. So there's a, I, I did a piece with Larry Wilkerson, and I titled it The, uh, the Split Between the Hard Right and the Far Right. It's a real split, uh, a real division. And uh, there's a part of this populist, quote-unquote, I don't even like using the word populist, but uh, of this Trumpist alliance, that actually really hates the Cheney-Bush crowd and even doesn't even like sections of the military-industrial complex. It's, it's mm. very interesting splits that are taking place. Yeah. Well, Wilkerson is great. Let me ask you this now um, before we move off of this particular uh, topic. Uh, for this to work, and Trump was delusional and has been for some time, obviously, but for it to work, he had to have Pence and McConnell to play along with him. Now, they didn't play along with him in the end, and maybe that's what uh, stopped the thing from becoming worse than it was. But there's yeah, a lot they, of reasons. They knew about it. It's because of what I said, because yeah. the National Association Manufacturers, because the elites had told McConnell and Pence what to do. Yeah. Wow. That's America today, folks. That's okay. who they're answering to. Uh, yeah. the, 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 I called it, you said at the beginning, I called a failed coup within a failed coup. Yeah. Like, there's still the question, which I don't know why I seem to be the only one asking. So unless I'm really missing something, the sergeant of arms of the Senate is the guy who really had the authority when asked by the, I should had this, the chain of command to get the National Guard to show up to defend the Capitol buildings, goes from the Capitol Hill police, chief of police, to this three-person committee, which is the Sergeant of Arms of the Senate, Sergeant of Arms of the House, and for some reason the 
congressional architect because they need a, a third person there. I don't know what the hell he knows. Because they deal with infrastructure issues. Yeah. And then, but the real senior person on that three-person committee is the sergeant of arms of the Senate. And who does he answer to? Uh, the majority party of the Senate. So who's that? That's Mitch McConnell. Yeah. And there's actual quote, an actual quote in the Washington Post later from the chief of police of the Capitol Hill Police, where he's quoted as saying, the morning of the 6th, I pleaded with the Sergeant of Arms of the Senate to call the National Guard in now. And he'd, it came out later that he'd actually been asking for it for at least two days leading up to the event. And, and, and the quote, and this is in the Washington Post, the quote is, the Sergeant of Arms of the Senate says, I'll have to ask my boss McConnell and get back to you. Now, there's no secret that's the chain of command, except he, according to this quote in the Post, he never did get back to the chief of police, and they mm. didn't call in the National Guard until many hours later. Mm. So why didn't McConnell authorize the request to the armed forces to bring in the National Guard? And I don't know why more people aren't asking that question. And here's where I go off stuff I know to be true to speculation, but it seems to me it kind of it's good speculation. Once McConnell realizes that the armed forces are not going to step in, Trump didn't get what he wanted out of Georgia or any of the other states, and the whole thing's falling apart, who does McConnell hate most in the world? Well, it's got to be Trump. Yeah. He's been kissing Trump's ass for four <laughs> years. He hate, never wanted Trump to be president, but he had no choice but to play along. So now he sees an opportunity. And let me again say, speculation, speculation. Now he has an opportunity. Let the shit show happen. It, what, it, it can't, what's it going to amount to if the military step in? A bunch of people will run around, go nuts. Yes, there'll be some violence. But in the end of it all, Trump will get blamed for it all. And finally, says McConnell, I'll be rid of this fucking asshole. And that was his coup. But that failed as well. He had completely underestimated the amount of support Trump had even after the events of January 6th. It's real, yeah. That's for sure. I mean, they're out there, folks. There's lots of them. They love the man. He may be coming back in 2024. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about, Paul, uh, again, talking about the Washington Post, that op-ed piece by those three generals um, that was in the Washington Post. I'm going to throw up on uh, screen this uh, coverage of it in Newsweek. But these generals, and at least one of them, uh, Matthew Ho even said, this guy's a sober, reflective clear-thinking individual. They're thinking that we may have another coup attempt or something worse uh, by at least 2024, and they're wanting, uh, and maybe they're just wanting, you know, but they're wanting to war game this. They're wanting to have preparation across all branches of the military to get ready for something that's coming in just a couple of years. Well, one, I think they're right. <laughs> Oh, God. And two, here's the problem. And this is what they don't want to talk about. Uh, this guy, Stavridos, the admiral I talked about, he had another article yeah. in Time magazine a couple of weeks after January 6th where he talked about extremists in the military. And he talked about the need to purge them 
he talked about Nazis and Proud Boys, white supremacists, and so on. But he didn't talk about the real issue, which is far more significant uh, than any of those groups, even though they're all somewhat associated with each other. And that's the strength of, they call themselves Christian nationalists, some people call them Christian fascists. That The power of Christian nationalists in the armed forces, like I interviewed a guy named Mikey Weinstein who, who runs the uh, uh, Military Religious Freedom Foundation, and they fight the efforts of these right-wing evangelicals and, and right-wing Catholics as well, Opus Dei types and others, to force soldiers into uh, this uh, into religious recruitment essentially uh weinstein thinks uh, and it's just it's somewhat anecdotal his estimate but he's been at this for years and years they he, they have like seventy five thousand soldiers that have on their email list and that they work with uh anyway he thinks it's not impossible or i should put it the other way he thinks it's likely 25 to 30 percent of the military is now christian nationalist in wow. an organized way. By organized, mm. meaning at various officer levels, uh, there are Christian nationalists essentially able to order Christian, pro-Christian nationalist troops around. And it goes to very high levels. I, I don't know how high, but he, he says very high. Uh, I mean, clearly, I don't, know if they're, I don't know if any of them are in the Joint Chiefs. Um, mm. And I don't know what the story is on uh, Flynn's brother is commander of the Pacific Forces, I believe. And uh, apparently a real believer he's described as. So does that mean Christian nationalist? I don't know, but maybe. I mean, that's the real story of January 6th. Why did they take a threat of a coup so seriously? Because it didn't matter what Trump was doing, what his machinations were with Georgia and all the rest. The focus was on the intervention of the military. And if it wasn't the most senior military leadership, then who was it? And it's, it's got to be uh, this Christ, these forces of Christian nationalism, Christian fascism in the military. And here's where the military has some problem. One, they're very strong. And, and you can't get rid of people just because of their religious beliefs. Three, and this is a point Wilkerson made, uh, is where, do, where are most of these Christian nationalists based? Well, in, in these rural, mostly poor states that are, guess what, the number one states for recruiting soldiers. So what happens to your recruitment campaigns that they're already having trouble? They, I just saw an article. They're going to offer, what is it, $50,000 bonuses for people that uh, volunteer to join the Army? I mean, the armed forces. Yeah. So you go and you piss off these areas where even Christian nationalism are strong. Who the hell are you going to recruit? So they have real dilemma here because uh, they've allowed this to fester. Why did they allow this kind of Christian nationalism to fester? Because one of the things about soldiers that are kind of true believers is they'll go out and die for you. And they won't ask too many questions. And if you want people to go out and kill the infidels in, in Iraq, because the Christian nationalists and the Islamic extremists are, are just two sides of the same coin, more or less. 
you know, you need believers, especially, you know, when soldiers who are not believers, <clears throat> you got to be a, a believer in, in Christian nationalism. At least you got to be a, a believer in Americanism. But that's a little bit harder to maintain these days. So they're, they've got real trouble. So, yeah, is there a real possibility that if, if they don't take back Congress in 2022, are, are they going to go nuts? Yeah. More likely, the way things are going, it looks like they are going to legitimately take back Congress to a lar large extent because so much money has gone into capturing uh, state uh, legislatures. Then through these state legislatures, they're now rewriting the uh, election laws and they're going to, through voter suppression and other means, uh, it's good, very difficult to see uh, how the Democrats are going to uh, keep control of perhaps both houses. And most importantly, uh, the Democratic Party and its leadership have been abject failures at implementing the vision they, they campaigned on and supposedly had. Uh, excuse me. Uh, and, and when I say failures, you know, it w they had to have known Joe Manchin and this, you know, woman from Arizona. They had to know that they were totally in the pockets of the most right-wing sections of the elites, uh, the fossil fuel industry primarily. And they needed from day one to go into West Virginia and start promising uh, and coming up with policy that is to do with real just transition, which is you promise fossil fuel workers you won't lose one penny of wages in the transition from fossil fuel uh, to sustainable energy and completely undercut Manchin's position in West Virginia. You would have forced him to go along with policies like that. But instead, they didn't, you know, the Biden administration didn't do that. And, 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 you know, there's other ways. What is it? Lyndon Johnson, you know, he was known to know how to knock heads. Well, you knock heads if you have to, to get, uh, uh, Manchin and this other woman on board. Uh, but that's what the Democratic Party is, and that's that's kind of the problem here. Yeah, well, and Manchin uh, particularly has uh, skeletons uh, in his closet that you can use to knock heads with. I mean, his family has some issues. Uh, Biden knows that, and a lot of the neoliberals, the moderates, like that plan that you um, – it's a great idea to compensate these uh, fossil fuel workers to pay them to transition to green jobs – a lot of them will say, well, hell, we can't afford that. Do you have any idea what that will cost? Well, I don't know what it will cost, but I know well, what the actually, F30... we do know. Yeah. Oh, you do? No, you we do, do know what it will cost. But, Bob Poland, the economist, model. Dollar cost? Yeah. Actually, yeah, to, to, to maintain the income level of every fossil fuel worker in the United States for three years, around $2 billion. Oh God, God! Now, just to put that into perspective, <laughs> one Ford-class aircraft carrier, one is about fourteen billion dollars. So well, you can buy years of subsidization by building one less aircraft carrier. And frankly, you don't need any aircraft carriers because one, they're already plenty, and two, they're useless because both the Russians and the Chinese can knock out 
one of those aircraft carriers in a matter of minutes. Like it's the the whole aircraft thing carries a boondoggle. But they didn't do it. So that's the end of our second segment now. This is a second of three episodes with Paul Jay. We've got one more to go, and I want to encourage everybody to go back and find uh, the earlier episodes. You can find those at podcastbygeorge.com on YouTube and all of the other various platforms. And we're going to have uh, another episode here coming up uh, with Paul Jay as we continue.